All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 12th day of June, 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, uh, let me remind you I am the author of uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can subscribe to that newsletter by going to miningstocks.com. It is a weekly newsletter uh, and then combines the best of the month into a monthly letter as well. And uh, so, again, that's miningstocks.com or uh, you can call our office here in New York, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 during the normal work hours. I would also encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter by going to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. Chen has had an enviable track record. He focuses to a great extent on the biotechs. He also, though, looks at a lot of gold mining companies as well uh, and other uh, energy companies, and those are some of the areas that he has done exceedingly well, but especially in the biotech sector. It's chenpicks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to invite you to keep your questions and comments coming along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are in resources, Balmoral Resources, Bonterra Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., Northern Empire, and Novo Resources. I do like to remind you that the companies are sponsors here by invitation, uh, and the companies uh, are really uh, they are invited. They're, these are companies that I have vetted myself, companies that I believe in, I have recommended to my subscribers, and in each and every case have also owned shares in those companies. I would like to start out by just passing on a bit of information that I wasn't completely aware of, though I should have been, and that is the seasonality of of the gold mining sector. I know my friend Chen is very much uh, aware of this. In fact, he does some of his timing, some of his purchases based on the fact that the second half of the year is much stronger for gold and uh, and gold shares than the first half. As a matter of fact, on average since 1975, every month from July on through the end of the year have averaged positive territory. That is gold on average, gains in all those months. However, the first six months of the year, only three months are up and three months are down. So you have a 50-50 chance of seeing gold rise in any uh, during the first half of the of the year, at least a 50-50 chance each month. Um, so in any event, uh, the worst month is March on average, and the best month is September. 
so anyway, that's just a, a tidbit, but I think it also helps to explain why the uh, many of our sponsors, the shares are down now from a seasonal point of view. Uh, certainly that's the case, and I'd like to just talk a little bit about some of our sponsors that I'm very excited about. RN Resources, well, it's trading at about $1.10 right now in U.S. money. It was as high as $3 earlier this year, and I got an email from Ivan Bebek, the chairman of RN this morning, he told me that the company has a lot of news coming out, will be coming out very shortly. Uh, the Sombrero project is due to start uh, a lot of news coming out from there, which is becoming, he says, more and more impressive each time we sample it and explore it. He's really excited about Committee Bay. They've been at three and a half years at Committee Bay. That's in Nunavut. Uh, this is, uh, he says, with with tighter space sampling we did in the off-season, and we will be showing investors the new narrative of targeting, which is the best it has been in our three and a half years there ahead of drilling. And and he mentions, um, well, they'll start drilling in July. He mentions that uh, it's really, there hasn't been any major discovery since 2011 of more than 5 million ounces in North America. Um, and, and he is uh, mentioning that, you know, it just takes a lot of time and effort and a lot of hard science to go find uh, the the large deposits, which are not so easily found anymore. The easy ones were discovered and mined out a long time ago. So they're up in Nunavut, for example. Uh, but as they continue to, to practice good science, they uh, uh, increase the odds and de-risk the project. So he's very excited about the news that should be forthcoming from Committee Bay uh, as uh, this year wears on. But before that, a lot of good news very possibly uh, expected from uh, Peru, where the company is now working, and especially the Sombrero project. Bonterra Resources, well, it's selling at around 42 cents now. It was a high of 72 cents earlier this year. Uh, this is a company that's developing a high-grade near-surface underground gold project in Quebec known as the Gladiator Project. Now, recently, the company announced an eye-popping assay of 34.3 grams per ton over 2.8 meters. Those kinds of grades are nothing new for this project, however. Uh, and based on the enormous amount of drilling that they've done over the last couple of years, uh, I think this you're going to see a, a much bigger, much higher grade deposit than investors are anticipating. Again, with the stock selling at 42 cents compared to 72 cents, you got the seasonality factor. But then later this year, it will be coming out with a, uh, a resource that should really, I think, knock the socks off of uh, uh, off of many investors. I don't think investors are expecting it. If they were, we wouldn't see the shares where they are now, a seasonality notwithstanding. Northern Empire is another favorite of mine, currently selling at around $1.19, a high of $1.62 this year. Uh, this is a company that's continuing to uh, have successful step-out drill hole results in its new Carlin-style discovery uh, in the southern end of uh, Nevada's Walker Lane trend. Now, it completely surrounds Corvus Gold's discovery which is uh, a very significant discovery in its own right. Um, in my view, this is also a stock that is vastly under uh, undervalued given the fundamentals. And in addition, you have the seasonality factor if you don't own the stock uh, to pick up some now. Novo Resources sold as high as $8.83 this year. It's now at around 4 dollars 
The hunt for the next Whitwaters Rand gold deposit is still alive and well. I spoke to Quentin Henning earlier today. He's the chairman of Novo, as you know. Uh, and he told me that we should expect some bulk sample assays over the next couple of weeks, within the next couple of weeks. But he said there's also likely to be an update before then. I don't know what he's talking about. We'll have to wait and see. Klondike Gold, well, that's selling at around 24 cents uh, now in Canadian money. It sold uh, as high as 60 cents earlier today. Well, Peter Talman is going to be with me right after the commercial break in just a few minutes, and he'll be talking about the development of uh, what they're doing there at on the Klondike Project, where some 20 million ounces of placer gold have been mined since the late 1800s in the Great Gold Rush following that California Gold Rush. Uh, they've been practicing some, some really good hard science. They've uh, really narrowed down and understand the geology now, it seems, uh, better than anyone has ever. Well, this they've really now been able to trace the origin of those 20 million ounces from the hills that surround the creeks uh, from which those ounces were mined by placer miners going back to the late 1800s. So the bottom line for me with regard to the junior gold shares and gold in general is that the fundamentals of many of these companies are really starting to come into focus. And also you have the seasonality going for you now uh, to pick up shares at uh, bargain basement prices. Well, let's get on to today's show. I've titled today's show, Gold's Monetary Rehabilitation. That's after a, uh, the title of a paper written by Alistair McLeod. And Alistair will be with us in the second half of today's show. And as I just mentioned, Peter Talman will be joining me in just a few minutes after the first commercial break. A quiet revolution is taking place in a monetary vacuum developing on the back of the dollar's eroding hegemony. Maybe it's too early to call what's happening the demise of the dollar as the world's reserve currency, but there is certainly a move away from it in Asia. And every time the Americans deploy their control over global trade settlements as a weapon against the regimes they dislike, nations who are neutral observers take note and consider how to protect themselves just in case. So Alistair will be with me to, to during the final segment, as I just said, to talk about these topics, uh, to talk about uh, gold and how gold is increasingly coming into play, although we don't hear much about it in the United States. Uh, it's a, gold is a non-political currency. The dollar is a political currency. Obviously, there's advantages to being able to print money out of nothing, to print to create money out of thin air. The U.S. has had that advantage. Other countries aren't so happy about it, and so we're going to talk to Alistair about some of the some of the actions, some of the policies being put in place by countries considered to be adversaries of the United States. Uh, a very important discussion coming up with Alistair. Uh, but again, turning to the more practical things, um, you know, how can we make money? How can we um, make money and turn our investments, uh, increase our wealth from that? Peter Talman uh, will give us some ideas uh, and at least help us understand uh, his approach at Klondike Gold to help that company um, uh, develop a what a lot of us believe can be a very major project. Well, we are going to go to commercial break now, but as I just said, uh, when we come back, Peter Talman will be with me, uh, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. A gold rush has begun. 
Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Peter Talman. He is the uh, he's a geologist. He's the president and CEO and a director of Klondike Gold, and he has had a lot of experience over the years, 30, more than 35 years in the mining industry, and he's had a great deal of success working in Canada, Chile, Mexico, Australia, um, where he's been involved with uh, these three mineral discoveries, uh, one gold, one antimony, and one zinc deposit in the past, and now he's on to what I believe uh, could very well be another one, perhaps the uh, the most significant deposit, uh, but time will tell. Certainly one that I like a lot. It is uh, one of my larger holdings personally, and of course, a Klondike is also a recommendation in my newsletter. Thanks for joining me again, Peter. Thank you very much for having me again. Just always good to talk to you. Um, especially as things seem to be coming into focus more now than, than the first time you and I spoke. But you, you and I met up at the Metals Investor Forum in Vancouver a few weeks back, and you told me that, geologically speaking, your Klondike Gold target, which trends some, I don't know, 55 kilometers, trending northwest, southeast, uh, is comparable geologically, at least part of it is, to the Kamenek Gold deposit. And that was a fairly significant deposit also, uh, there uh, in the Yukon. It was sold off to Gold Corp for a half a billion dollars or something like that. Of course, you have a lot of work to do uh, before investors can start to get a handle on what your project is worth. But what can you tell our listeners about the significance of the revelation of the similarities between uh, the Kamenak geology and, and what you see at the Klondike project? Well, really, that's, it's trying to look at Klondike in a, in a bigger picture and place it Kind of in the world metallogenically, mm-hmm. and as it turns out, one of the closest comparables is right next door, uh, which was the Kamenak coffee discovery. Mm-hmm. And the rocks that host coffee are exactly the same; they're the undifferentiated Klondike schist unit. Um, all the other units around it are the same. So at coffee, they have three or four different units that are mineralized uh, with gold. And those same units in the same order and kind of the same layout are present uh, within the Klondike district and so within mm-hmm. our claims. And then mm. second to that, um, the, the, the rocks at, at Coffee were cut by a, 
uh, a fault, and actually it was a, a particular fault pattern. It looks like a horse tail. Mm-hmm. Um, and that very same fault pattern over the exact same length, basically. So we have the same horse tail with the same length, um, effectively in the same orientation, cutting the same rocks mm-hmm. um, at, at, at the Klondike, same as at Coffee. And so uh, currently they're aged they're dated differently, seemingly, but regardless, from a big picture point of view, you have kind of the same structure cutting the same rocks. So what we're looking at is effectively the same styles of mineralization at coffee that are appearing in the Klondike. And so that's really important because we have a, a roadmap. We can we mm-hmm. just look at the coffee data and go, ah, well, look at that. Look at all these patterns and their, their faults are mineralized. So are ours. They seem to have the same geometry. Let's go look and, and use their data to guide our exploration. Oh, that's, uh, so it could be a, a really big advantage, of course, something that's far from the view of most investors, but uh, that it lessens the risk, I suppose, uh, or at least it, in theory, it lessens the risk of your exploration efforts going forward, right? It does that, and it also gives us, uh, we well, inadvertently, but as it turns out, we've hired all the consultants that, that Kamenak used to kind of advance their projects, and uh, so we have their expertise coming starting next week uh, on the property, and, uh, and we'll basically use them uh, to as, as outside consultants to help guide our exploration. So, yeah, there's a, there's a great benefit to that. You know, you. This is just a gigantic target, uh, as you've noted, of, of some 55 kilometers. It stretches out. Um, I believe there are maybe what two or uh, three main areas that you're focusing on. I believe the Lone Star, Quartz Creek, and Gold Run. Or is do I have that right? Are those the right names? Well, they were. Um, you know, the Lone Star is, is number one. Yeah. Um, Gold Run is at the absolute other end of the district. Right, and, at the southern uh, end, and, yeah. And Quartz Creek, which is a, a big soil anomaly that we don't still know much about, is right in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. And then most recently, it's reevaluating things at, at Nugget. And, and I, Nugget has suddenly gone from my kind of a dark horse here to a, a really significant target for us. Um, so I, I put Lone Star, sorry, Nugget at number two after Lone Star right now. Where is Nugget located on that that 55-kilometer stretch? Um, It's not far from Lone Star, so in the northeast end. uh, Lone Star, the Lone Star Gold Zone is the source of the Bonanza Creek uh, detrital gold, alluvial gold that was mined. Mm -hmm. That was the discovery uh, for the gold rush. And I think Nugget is just over the ridge from it, um, and it, it... it is the source, or at least one of the sources, for El Dorado Creek, which is the second largest um, 1890s gold rush creek. All right. Well, just I, I guess it was just yesterday you put out a press release discussing the first core pulled from Lone Star. What are you trying to achieve there, and, and what have you learned from – have you learned anything from the, from the visual uh, observations of the core? Um, well, yeah, it, it's no surprise. So the Klondike itself is known for visible gold. That's that's one difference from coffee, where coffee is mm-hmm. is invisible gold. So they use that; they extract it with a heat leach. In the Klondike, all the gold is visible. 
Um, and so when we drill it, we can see gold. Um, I don't, I've gotten away from announcing that because you just never know what assay you'll get out of it. But yeah. uh, at, at Lone Star, we've previously defined a, at least a kilometer of mineralization and strike length uh, open in both directions. What we're doing now is trying to determine the geometry of it by drilling sections. And that's exactly what Kamenak did um, to kind of prove to the world that there was sufficient gold at, at coffee. And so we've, we are in the process of drilling Lone Star on sections down dip. And the geometry looks really good because when we go two or 300 meters down dip, the mineralization, mm-hmm. because it's on a hillside, the mineralization is still within 100 meters of surface. Ah. And, and I think once we get these sections put up, and so I can show to the, all, all investors, here's look at the geometry of this. It's, a, it's just a natural open pit um, geometry. Mm-hmm. Go in from the side of the hill, from the mountain. Well, we're, we're on, we are on the side of the hill, and, it, uh-huh. and the mineralization seems to parallel it. So it's, it's uh-huh. just in the near subsurface. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a, what it's turning out to be, it, it would appear that we have a, a long dip length as well as a long strike length in the mineralization, and that's what we're trying to determine. Um, and so if we get, we'll outline an area, I think that's going to be reasonably significant, and that lets investors, at least as a start, begin to estimate, mm-hmm. you know, how much gold could really be there. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I hope by mid-late summer we'll have, we'll have made really good progress in doing that. Well, well, we'll certainly be looking forward to that. Um, yeah, I, so that's up in the northwestern corner, the northwestern, towards the northwestern end of this long this long 55-kilometer target. Uh, you also drilled four reconnaissance holes at the Gold Run target at the other end of the, of the trend, um, 35 kilometers southeast of there. Uh, what have you learned from those holes, and, and are, you really, are you pleased with what you're seeing, or is it something you expected or, or not? Well, it, so the, the gold, gold Run is, as you say, the exact other end of the district, um, but it appears to be on the same structure as the one that controls the Lone Star Gold mineralization. And so, you know, let's go jump down there. We found gold. Um, there are a couple of old turn-of-the-century uh, mines and, and, and old workings that had quartz veins with visible gold in them. And so we drilled that. And the question really is not, is there visible gold in quartz veins, because that's that's the stuff that's attracted everyone throughout the last 120 uh-huh. years. Sure. The question is, is there any gold in the wall rock that hosts those quartz veins? Mm-hmm. And uh, we, no surprise again, we found quartz veins in drilling at Gold Run that have visible gold in them. And we've seen alteration, significant alteration adjacent to the veins in core. And the question now, we have to wait for assays, basically. But even the... The proof of concept to me is there's quartz veins there with alteration, whether it's gold bearing mm-hmm. or not. That's a live system, and it's very much like the one we see at Lone Star, and it's already worthy of much more exploration. Um, and that's regardless of what results we get. So uh, I'm really hopeful. I, I am personally very hopeful that we get decent results out of the drilling. But regardless, there's a really big target uh, there, and that 
that whole area would explain why Gold Run, which is another one of these important uh, 1890s alluvial gold rush creeks, mm-hmm. uh, I think we're on to finding another source within the Klondike at Gold Run. No. So how soon uh, do, you, do you expect to have some assays out? You, you, you're drilling now. Will you be batching them, or when might we, we start to see some assays? The, well, I, I had to go look it up. I figured you'd ask that question. And of course I would. <laughs> I, I would expect sometime after your July the 4th weekend holiday. Okay, um, all right. We would, we'll get the very first core somewhere in the July 1st to the 4th is what the lab predicts. But, of course, mm-hmm. it's Canada Day for us as well, so I don't believe yeah. the lab is going to be working. It'll be sometime after that. Um, so um, and have... I'll probably the first couple couple of holes would be natural. So uh, anyway, I, by mid I would say mid July uh, mm-hmm. will be the first holes released from Lone Star. And I guess uh, then it will depend to a certain extent, to a great extent, perhaps, on what you see, what your next steps will be for for Lone Star or for Gold uh, for Gold Run. I'm sorry. Um, well, we have. Uh, yeah. So we we jumped down there. We went and drilled it without really having any information other than looking at uh-huh. it from surface. And so we have a we have an airborne starting next week. Um, there's a regional soil program. We're finally getting to the point where we believe there's lots of gold in the Klondike in our property, and so let's do the regional work necessary to understand mm-hmm. the full length of it. Um, and that will co- cover in detail gold run. And I think out of that, we're going to get targets. And then we'll actually have a, you know, we'll have a, a geology map, uh, mm-hmm. a soil map, and an airborne or a magnetic magnetic map to go target things better. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> well, you mentioned uh, at the start of our conversation a few minutes ago that you now consider Nugget, to which is up there close to Lone Star, uh, to be your second most promising target at this stage. In a news release yesterday, you mentioned that you found new things in the old core that you drilled in 2015-2016 in the Nugget Zone. Uh, Did you miss something there? And if so, could you explain what what you maybe didn't see the first pass? Well, that's really the, the discovery story. For Klondike right now, and it's it's really exciting. Is that 120 years people have been looking at the quartz veins and sampling them only. That's where gold has historically been found, and we've finally we have found it disseminated in the schists next to the quartz veins, mm. and for the first time, we started sampling that in well 2017 really. Uh, and so there's a significant amount of gold. I believe it's like 80% of the alluvial gold Klondike, 20 million ounces of gold, comes from disseminated, not the quartz veins. Huh. At, wow. at, at Nugget, we've drilled a total of 23 holes in a, about a kilometer and a half strike length in there. They've all hit, although I've previously reported that they hadn't. Um, but we've gone back and looked at them and gone, you know what, oh. there is a wide, broad zone in every one of those holes of gold mineralization, and we didn't sample most of the holes in those intervals. Mm. Um, wow. And so I, I, the only, there's two. Uh, we, they weren't released, I'll, I'll tell you this now, the, uh, like, whatever. One of the holes, if you look at it from a broad point of view, it's 3.2 grams over 22.5 meters. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those are some of the best holes <laughs> drilled on the property, and they weren't released that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think that has a lot of potential. Basically, every hole hit over a kilometer and a half, like 1.4 oh. kilometers, and we need to do a lot of sampling to get caught up, and, and we know there's disseminated gold there now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just... It's a shift in thinking. You're, yes, I, that was me personally going, right, we only, we're only going to worry about the quartz veins when we initially mm-hmm. started. But, sure. Uh, and we didn't know about the disseminated. Now we do. I think it's a great target. All right. Well, you, with such a large project, then uh, I, I guess how are you narrowing it down then? What, what, how do you decide where to put your, your next dollars? I guess it, it has to do with assays. It has to do with potential value, I guess, right? Well, and, and the shift this year, um, it, it's already begun, but it, we're going to be drilling for looking ahead towards resources. And so that's really the priority. Um, so Lone Star definitely has some considerable size and potential. And so let's, let's figure out you know, what the geometry of that is and the grade uh, nugget just it's easy to do because we can go resample and there'll be lots of results coming from that this summer. Um, mm-hmm. And I think they'll all be positive and we'll design a drill program for Nugget that will, you know, kind of focus on can we establish lengths and widths and looking ahead to resources again. Um, and that probably means that Gold Run, as exciting as it is, it'll, it'll certainly get another look and probably another drill program it just it'll be quick as a recce because we already have enough on our plate this year mm-hmm. um, to, to do. And mm-hmm. you know, in the meantime, that'll get all the regional data in and looked at, and we can figure out really how be- <laughs> what kind of a tiger we have by yeah. the tail right now. Yeah. Well, what? Um, so your resource probably won't be. You won't have a resource out this year yet. Probably it'd be. 2019, or, or might we see a research? No, yeah, not not this year. If we go on the Kamenak timeline, what we're aiming at is to produce a, a geology 43-101 report uh, after the end of this field season, and then and Kamenak did that and actually waited, I think, another two years to produce a, a first resource. Um, we made. I, I'm going to try to do that. For the end of 2019, no promises, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think we can do that. All our short, all our holes are really short and quick, so we can do a lot of drilling. Anyway, we'll we'll see how that goes. But the end of 2019 yeah. is what I'm in at, aiming at. All right, Peter, you have a, a, a very large target. You've got some very large mining companies up there in the Yukon around you. To what extent do you think they are aware of what you're doing? <laughs> To a great extent, I know they're aware of it. Um, so, and I, I actually, I'll be seeing some of them next week. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess you can't say a whole lot more than that, but it's it's uh, certainly something that I'll be watching carefully for uh, news on. Um, you and you have enough money, I think, to take you through this year. You told me before, right? Uh, this year, two and a half million budgeted. Next year, two and a half million budgeted. That would leave money into 2020. So we're fully funded Wonderful. through in, into 2020. Well, we want to see some really good results come out and the share price go up uh, several fold from where it is now before you finance again. That's what I hope as a shareholder anyway. 
Um, and we're, as you said, we're coming into that seasonality too, and yeah. I hope to deliver some really good results into that. And like I said, we're fully financed, but but you know, if the world really loves us, then there's always opportunity for more, and that would expand the program for next year. Yeah, well, you are limited though in your seasonality. There, you can drill up to how long? What? When do you have to uh, shut down? Last year we were drilling still the last uh, the first week of October. Um, uh-huh. Although my my crew aren't that crazy about that. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> well, in any event, uh, anything else you'd you'd like to tell us? Uh, any any closing thoughts, uh, Peter? Before no, we I, other than you know I, I'm I'm becoming increasingly excited by what I see as great potential um, and. I know that we are figuring out the Klondike and, and finding sources for that old uh, historical uh, alluvial mining district. So it's it's super exciting. Okay, we'll have to leave it at that. Thank you so much, Peter. It is an exciting story. I'm glad I own some shares. Uh, wished I had bought them at this price, but I think compared to where we're heading, I, I think I'm going to be a happy camper. I hope so. We'll see, but we'll certainly find it fascinating. And thanks so much for spending time with us to explain the story to our listeners. Uh, we'll look forward to doing it again sometime in the not-too-distant future, hopefully. All right, folks, well, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away. Alistair McLeod is going to be with us to discuss the trend towards the remonetization of gold as part of the evolving geopolitical world that we're living in now. So don't go away. Fascinating discussion with Alistair McLeod coming up. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Alistair McLeod. Uh, he's here today to discuss prospects for gold making its way back into the global monetary system to replace the existing order that has the dollar as the world's major reserve currency. Welcome, Alistair. Thanks for joining me again today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jay. 
Always good to hear from you uh, across the pond, as they say. Alistair, before we get, begin our discussion, I, I would like to have my engineer play a very short comment from Secretary of State John Kerry, who was responding to neocon suggestions that the uh, Obama nuclear treaty with Iran be scrapped. And this uh, took place late during the Obama administration. Matt, can you go ahead and play that clip for me now? Are you kidding me? The United States is going to start sanctioning our allies and their banks and their businesses because we walked away from a deal and we're going to force them to do what we want them to do even though they agreed to the deal we came to? Are you kidding? That is a recipe quickly, my friends, for them to walk away from Ukraine where they are already very dicey and ready to say, well, we've done our bit. They were ready, in many cases, to say, well, we're the ones paying the price for your sanctions. We, we, it was Obama who went out and actually put together a sanctions regime that had an impact. By pers- I went to China. We persuaded China, don't buy more oil. We persuaded India and other countries to step back. Can you imagine trying to sanction them after persuading them to put in face sanctions to bring Iran to the negotiating table? And when they have not only come to the table, but they made a deal, we turn around and nix the deal and then tell them you're going to have to obey our rules on the sanctions anyway. That is a recipe very quickly, my friends, business people here, for the American dollar to cease to be the reserve currency of the world, which is already bubbling out there. Wow. It's already bubbling out there, Alistair. And this was, uh, you know, what, a couple of years ago now, uh, two, three years ago, late in the Obama administration. Um, Do you think that Kerry was simply trying to use the threat of a loss of dollar hegemony as leverage against American military hawks? Or do you think his concerns were legitimate? Well, I think his concerns were legitimate as history has rather borne out. Um, he may have been using it to, uh, you know, for other political purposes, as it were. But I, to, to my mind, his warning was was loud and clear and very, very genuine. And indeed, um, uh, you know, you didn't have to be in the higher echelons of um, government to know that the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, and everyone else had got the message from America that um, if you fall out with America, then uh, you're not going to be able to buy anything um, because the US dollar is the one currency everybody uses. And if you're cut off from the US dollar, then you're in trouble. So what do you do? You plan ahead and you think, um, I need another currency. And this is precisely uh, what the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are doing. Um, You're going to have two currencies which are going to dominate the Asian continent. Um, One is obviously the Chinese Yuan and the other is the Russian ruble. Now, the question is, how do you make them acceptable and superior to the dollar as a foreign currency of choice? for um, anybody on the Asian continent. And that's really um, what I addressed in the article, which I wrote a couple of weeks back, on why I think we're going to have, um, uh, you know, we're going to have, if you like, gold reintroduced as part of the monetary system. That is uh, really unthinkable by Americans, Alistair. I must say, whenever I mention that to people that aren't um, of our persuasion, Austrian free market thinkers, uh, you know, they, they wonder if I shouldn't be committed to some sort of a, a psychological examination at the least. 
uh, that I would uh, that I would offer that. But I think Americans in general just don't really understand what an advantage we've had. Uh, it seems to me that the notion of the ability of the United States to create endless amounts of money out of thin air is a topic that few Americans even think about. Yet the ability to do that is hugely advantageous to the United States and to all of us living in America. Perhaps some of our listeners don't fully understand that, but would you care to sort of uh, just explain, Alistair, the advantage that the United States has enjoyed by being able to have the world's reserve currency and to be able to seemingly create endless amounts of it to expand our military, to expand our presence geopolitically around the world, uh, to give things away to people, to, I don't know, do whatever. But could you talk a little bit about the tremendous advantage that uh, that we Americans, uh, you're British, but at least those of us in the Western world have have enjoyed from this privilege of uh, creating money out of nothing, endless amounts uh, yeah, of it. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's really very, very simple. Um, the dollar is the reserve currency for the world. Everything outside America... Um, between different countries is priced in dollars. I mean, when I say everything, commodities, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of loans between one country to another, if they're not in, you know, one of the two currencies of the two countries, it's always in dollars. Um, the uh, Everybody's accounting, international accounting, is all done in dollars. We run balance sheets in dollars. Um, if you have an international portfolio or you have... Um, uh, you know, a sovereign wealth fund, you're accounting in dollars. You're buying assets and paying for them in dollars. And when you sell them, you get dollars in return. So there is this always this enormous demand for dollars, which is created by the very fact that it is the reserve currency. And what this means is that the American, uh, uh, America can finance its um, deficits um, on the back of that demand. So what you have is instead of uh, an economy which, um, when it's it, it, it gets a fiscal deficit and a trade deficit, the currency starts going down to reflect that. No, there is always the demand for dollars to buy those dollars and to recycle them into dollar-denominated assets, and that basically is a process which has been going on for a long time. Um, it, it it really um, first started, I think, if in it, after the Second World War. If we put the you know the two world wars to one side for a moment, mm-hmm. basically what America did is she paid for um, uh, the wars in Korea and Vietnam by printing dollars for export, if you like. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we got to know that this was a problem basically because there were so many dollars held in um, foreign central banks' hands as a result of this. You know, they were finding that the dollars were coming in out of Southeast Asia, um, that uh, countries like France, who previously had been the colonial power um, uh, in Southeast Asia, in places like um, uh, uh, Vietnam in particular, found that uh, they were awash with these dollars. And so what did they do? They redeemed them for gold. So the first time this happened, you know, that you had the excess quantity of dollars in foreign hands, it created uh, the run on U.S. gold reserves, which ended up with uh, Nixon ending the whole of the Bretton Woods uh, agreement in August 71. Um, Since then, um, 
you had a sort of you had the inflationary blow off through the 1970s and into the early 80s and then after that really the game has started again i mean the americans have been producing dollars for export and living on the back of it very happily thank you um and uh, that has been the whole basis of the dollar valuation the fact that um america has been able to um you know sort of run deficits and get them financed is purely because the dollar is the reserve currency so that that in a nutshell is what happens now the chinese um uh, strategists military strategists have uh, their own take on this they see it as a means by which america creates and destroys um regimes outside mm-hmm. the country Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's quite easy for America to feed money into uh, a country and then to withdraw the money from the country when they don't like the <laughs> the regime. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you go into the the, the um, details from the People's Liberation Army strategists, you know, they've got their own take on all this and how it happens. Now, this is important because this informs the Chinese um, monetary strategy uh, when it comes to the geopolitical relationships between uh, China as um, one of the two leaders of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization mm-hmm. and America. And America really wants to muscle in on the, um, uh, on the Asian scene to prevent um, China and Russia from, uh, uh, if you like, becoming superpowers uh, uh, um, in competition with America. Now, uh, things have moved on slightly since that was absolutely true, but you can mm-hmm. see that this is where the, the the tension really starts. And if we're going to talk about um, how currencies develop and evolve from here, that is the central focus. That is the central problem that uh, the big uh, geopolitical strategists will be looking at, in, in, in certainly in terms of uh, of money. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, uh, you know, I mean, a question, a, a discussion that we've had before was that the, the way the U.S. was able to retain the strength of the dollar when we went off the gold standard in 1971 was through an arrangement with Saudi Arabia and OPEC to demand payment uh, in dollars for the sale of their oil uh, around the world. And, of course, uh, countries, most countries aren't are importers of oil, so they would have to go out and buy dollars in order to buy the oil. Anyway, that's how it got started, as I understand it. But now, as you point out, um, China and other countries that are considered to be adversarial uh, nations, the U.S., countries that are kicking back a little bit against what you just described, uh, are now finding various ways, and you started to talk about some of them. before we before we go on to some more of these institutions and, and policies that have been put in place by China and Russia to uh, to protect themselves and to compete against the dollar, uh, maybe you could just comment a little bit on what it might mean for America's standard of living and our own markets if the dollar should cease to be the world's reserve currency. Or let's say I, I don't I don't suppose that you expect that to happen quickly, but over a period of time, perhaps. What will that mean for the living standards of America, for example? Yes, um, in the absence of change from the Chinese and Russian side, um, I see the um, the role of the dollar declining. Um, I mean, it's something like, I don't know, 90% of trade settlement is done in dollars and only uh-huh. 10% in the rest. I mean, I, I'm... T- I'm plucking imaginary figures out of the air. Yeah, something but, like that. Yeah, something like that. I would expect, um, you know, without um, China and Russia uh, stirring the pot, as it were, 
that perhaps in three or four years' time, you might see that 25% of global trade is not settled in dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, the effect of that, obviously, is to create sellers of dollars, because mm-hmm. if dollars are being used less outside America, then foreigners have too many dollars. So they're going to tend to um, be net sellers. Um, <coughs> excuse me. If the process is gentle, then it probably won't have too much of an effect on the purchasing power of the dollar. But if, on the other hand, it is not gentle, and let us say that China accelerates her, uh, the production of um, uh, financial instruments so that uh, anyone taking yuan can hitch them, mm-hmm. then it could be that the demise of the dollar might happen quite rapidly. Now, the reason for that, I think, is that uh, relative to Asia, America is taking a rather isolationist stance when it comes to trade. Um, uh, this is something that President Trump um, uh, is, is keen to do. He wants to uh, stop the trade deficits. Um, he wants to have fair trade. He wants to balance it, uh, uh, you know, the, so that there isn't a, a trade deficit in, mm-hmm. in, in America. Um, China and Russia, on the other hand, are all for free trade rather than restricting trade of any sort. And um, China in particular has got virtually the whole of sub-Saharan Africa sewn up uh, when it comes to the supply of raw materials and the industrial commodities that she needs. She's also got quite a lot of Australia sewn up. And the whole point about the uh, the twin Silk Road projects is a maritime one. Um, she's been building these forts on these um, uh, reefs in the South China Sea to protect that route. Um, and uh, also there's the overland one. Now, the amount of money that's been spent on these is enormous and uh, it's going to facilitate an awful lot of trade. So you can see that the way in which trade is going over the next five to ten years is it's the amount of non-American trade uh, and specifically Asian trade, Asian-related trade, is going to be increasing in, 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 in huge quantities. So uh, this, I think, is going to be a problem for the dollar. And I think what it means is that the reduction in sovereign wealth fund portfolios and all the rest of it of the dollar content is likely to lead to a weakening dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is before we talk about, um, you know, if the dollar really does weaken uh, after the next credit crisis, which is a whole new topic, mm-hmm. uh, then in those circumstances, the Chinese and the Russians will protect their currencies, or I would expect them to protect their currencies. And the only way in which they can do that, and they've signaled that this is actually what they are doing, um, is by introducing gold to give stability to their currencies. So there will be at least a degree of gold convertibility involved. And I would have thought for that to really work, it would have to be total. So Mm -hmm. what you have is an interesting situation developing. You have got, when it comes to the next credit crisis, which in my view is probably no more than about 12 months away, probably less, uh, then what you will have is the Fed flooding um, the domestic uh, U.S. financial markets with uh, 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 money to stop uh, deflation, falling prices, bank crisis, uh, U.S. government uh, funding crisis. To stop all that happening, they will bang interest rates down again, um, try and flood the economy with money so that um, nothing actually collapses. This is what they did in 2007-8. It's what they will do again. It's the only thing they know um, uh, what to do when you do get that crisis. So 
we then have to ask ourselves, okay, we've already got uh, huge quantities of dollars in the system and in foreign portfolios and in sovereign wealth funds. What's going to happen to the value of the dollar if they start flooding it a second time to rescue Mm -hmm. the U.S. economy from a domestic credit crisis? I think the answer is quite simple, and that is that the dollar has got a lot of weakness ahead of it. And uh, it's, it, it is potentially a setup which is hyperinflationary. Mm-hmm. So if you come back to the yuan and, you, and, and the ruble and you're, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin and Mr. Xi sitting there thinking, well, what do I do in the event of yeah. uh, a collapse in the dollar? Then I think the answer is you try and insulate yourself as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can effectively do that in a totally fiat currency system is by linking your currency to gold. Mm-hmm. Getting outside of that fiat currency system, it's really what Americans, uh, some, a few, are doing, but most, of course, are oblivious to the risks that you're talking about to the dollar. Um, Alistair, with just uh, about five or six minutes left, I wonder if you could maybe focus a little bit on on the Shanghai Oil Exchange and the Shanghai Gold Exchange and talk to our listeners a little bit about how it may be in the best interest of, of oil-selling countries, perhaps, uh, like Iran, uh, that's considered a, an adversary of the United States, uh, maybe Turkey, I don't know, the oil producers, why they might not want to you know, be happy to sell their oil in exchange for yuan because they can, then ex- they can then, uh, hedge against, uh, with, with, uh, with gold right on the Shanghai Exchange. Yes. The origin of this is that um, the Chinese want to use their own currency for buying oil. They import a figure like 8 million barrels a day. And um, they import oil from Saudi Arabia, from Iran, from even Angola, places like that. and and so on and so on. So and also Russia. Russia is very, very big in this. Um, so uh, Russia is quite happy to accept Chinese yuan. Angola already takes uh, Chinese yuan. Mm-hmm. Um, other countries like uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, Iran, in a sense, would rather have dollars because she's got a real crisis. The squeeze on her is huge. But mm-hmm. she can't take any dollars for the simple reason that no banks will deal with her. So, you know, it's... For her, that that route is cut off completely. So um, in order to accelerate the acceptance of yuan in return for oil, what the Chinese have done is they've introduced um, an oil futures contract settled in yuan. So what that does is it allows a country like like uh, Iran to avoid using the dollar entirely for her gold sale, for her oil sales. She sells oil to China. Um, She will sell it forward. Uh, and she will have a forward settlement on her yuan, which she can then match into something else. So the question is, what is the something else? Now, there is in Hong Kong and also in Dubai um, a yuan gold contract. Mm-hmm. There isn't one yet in in in, in, uh, Shanghai. Uh, in, in Shanghai, but there is definitely you know marketable contracts in in Hong Kong and also Dubai. So. Mm-hmm. What um, uh, a country like Iran can do um, on the margin is to hedge some of her yuan directly into gold uh, through uh, the futures exchanges in Hong Kong and Dubai and take delivery. Now, those two exchanges have got together, along with a few other countries like Vietnam and Cambodia and um, 
and also Singapore, to try and set up um, an enhanced delivery, gold delivery mechanism. And they have, with the agreement of the Chinese government, uh, contracted to take uh, a 2,000 tonne uh, vaulting facility on the Chinese mainland. So um, what you can see is that the whole of Southeast Asia is now concentrated on potentially satisfying the physical gold demand that is likely to come from these oil sales. And it's not going to stop there. I mean, the contracts, other contracts are going to become very active, I think, mm. over a period of time, all denominated in yuan for copper, for um, right. you know, nickel and all the rest of it. All right. Well, look, we're just we're really basically running out of time. But I know I believe the first the first uh, contract to expire on the Shanghai Oil Exchange is in September, something like that. Do you, that, do you that, see? Yes, it's, that's right. It's a yeah, September and Do you see then that possibly, uh, potentially, a huge demand for physical gold that could wreak havoc on the paper gold markets? Um, well, it's possible. I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't hang my hat on that. Yeah. Um, because these things are going to take a little bit of time to uh-huh. work through and develop. Um, yeah. But I think we need to watch, um, for example, will Saudi Arabia accept yuan uh, for oil? And I think right. she probably will. That's the sort of thing you really want uh, to look out for at this right. stage. We're going to have to leave it go out there at that. Uh, we are out of time. Thank you so much, Alistair, for being with us again. Um, we'll hope to have you back again sometime soon. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Next week, uh, Mrs. Taylor and I are on vacation. Uh, John Rubino is going to sit in for me as host, uh, and he'll be talking to Doug Noland, uh, who used to work with David Tice, the Prudent Bear Fund, uh, now with David McElvenny at the International Collectors Association. Uh, Michael Oliver is expected to be here, and uh, also uh, I'll be uh, interviewing uh, Brian Groves of Genesis Metals next week, uh, a pre-recorded interview next week. So until then, goodbye. God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Montero Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling, where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol BONXF. Oren Resources is a technically driven, capital-efficient exploration company focused on delivering shareholder value through accretive project acquisition and discovery. The company's management team has a record of success in the discovery, advancement, and monetization of exploration assets. Oren's focus is on advancing its seven premier gold exploration projects located in Canada and Peru. Oren's shares trade on the TSX in Canada and the NYSE American in the U.S. under the stock symbol AUG. For more information, please visit orenresources.com.